Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry. And I'm Caroline Liefers. And it's our absolute pleasure today to be in conversation with James Odato. James is a freelance journalist and former reporter for the Albany Times Union. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Albany, who teaches courses on writing, research, and advanced reporting. James, it is so exciting to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much, Kelsey. Uh, you, you feel free to call me Jim. Um, I, I answer to Jim and James and a lot of other things, but Jim's fine. Perfect. Thank you for having us. Uh, so Caroline and I recently had the pleasure of reading Jim's new book, uh, This Brain Had a Mouth, Lucy Gwynn and the Voice of Disability Nation which is a biography of advocacy journalist and disability rights activist, Lucy Gwynn. I'm wondering if you can start us off by just telling us a bit about how you first learned about Lucy Gwynn and where did this project start for you? Why did you feel compelled to tell her story among other stories? Well, that's a good, story, a good question. And uh, it's, it's a long answer and I, I, I'll give you, the intermediate one. The, um, the thing that I do and have been doing for a long time is um, writing stories. I've been a, a daily journalist and a freelance journalist, and I have been a student of narrative journalism and a student of biography. And uh, I have always pursued a good story. I've always looked for good stories. And I, I, when I instruct my journalists, uh, my journalism students, I have always told them ways to find good stories. And I have built into my syllabus uh, a, a trip to, to the university archives. And my, the students that I, I teach are usually upper level students, juniors and seniors. Uh, undergrad journalism majors mostly. Almost all of them are journalism makers, majors. Every once in a while I get a communications major or um, something like that. Anyway, uh, I, what I find several times is that uh, even though they're upper level students have been walking around the campus for four years, they've never been to the, the archives. I build into my, my syllabus a day at the archives and I tell them, I, um, this is a place filled with story ideas. There are documents everywhere. I always talk about the value of documents and records, primary source materials. Um, I suspect, I know that Yale has a beautiful archive. I hope you folks have been there at least once. You may not have been. And if you have been, you may be among the minority of your uh, colleagues at that college. So as I told you, I'm gonna give you the intermediate answer to your question, not the long one. It's already started pretty long. But anyway, I uh, finished up one semester of teaching um, and it was May. And um, I decided that what I was gonna do was I was gonna to tour archives within a couple hour drive of my home in Schenectady, New York. And I, I went online, looked at the finding aids at various archives at various schools, and I was looking for a good story. And I found some very good possibilities. 
and they took me to various campuses. And <clears throat> one of the campuses they took me to was the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And on the 25th floor of the what was the tallest library in North America, it may still be, is their archive. And in that archive is, a, is six boxes, the, the papers of Lucy Gwynn. And I had checked that out. I had circled it on my finding aid. It's something that looked interesting. There's an abstract you can read. And it tells you about a woman who was a founder of a magazine and disability rights activist. See, hmm, that's interesting. I'm a journalist. Maybe there's something there. Well, I went and I spent the day looking at that archive. And I said, somebody ought to write a book about this woman. I said, this, this, is, this is interesting stuff. I thought I might be able to go there and get uh, an idea for a narrative uh, long form story, at least. And what I came back with was an idea that maybe this could be a biography. Um, and that, that's how I got started. I never heard of Lucy Gwynn before. And when I looked at her papers, I said to myself, I think a lot of people have never heard of Lucy Gwynn before, and maybe they should. Thanks so much for that answer. I love your comment that uh, someone should write a book about her and that someone turned out to be you. That's always a, a nice sort of full circle moment. Can you say a little bit more about how this book um, relates to your larger previous body of work? as a journalist, did it feel like a big departure or is there kind of a connection to some other work that you've done? You know, Caroline, uh, the, um, the thing you do when you're a, a, a reporter is you're, you're turning over stories pretty quickly, right? Um, most times, if you get a week to do a story, you're in good shape. Uh, I have been lucky in my career um, to have the opportunity um, in which editors gave me multiple weeks to do stories. Um, so I have been free to write and research lengthy stories during my career. I enjoy doing that. That's something I appreciated. Um, but by the same token, there's always that drumbeat, you know, that you need to turn stuff out. You need to be productive. You need to be doing your share to, to fill those news holes, right? So, um, but in connection with whether this was a, a great departure, uh, it was not really a great departure. It was more um, opportunity to do what I've done for a long time, but concentrating on one subject. Um, it required all the skills that I've been telling my students about and trying to instruct them on uh, interviewing, uh, document research, um, the value of, uh, of uh, records, public checking all kinds of public repositories. Um, what was different was once I had everything and once I thought it would be, like I said, a, a book, the difference was I had to pitch this to not an, a news editor. Um, I had to go find a publisher who might be interested in it. And that was a little different. And then when you get into the, the process of putting a book together, there's a lot of, a lot of things you don't do as a journalist. Um, a lot of you know, like indexing and 
uh, and footnoting and Chicago style writing, which is totally different from Associated Press. Um, and it's almost like a foreign language to a reporter. So that was different. But um, but in terms of, you know, the work, it was really just um, like if you know how to play basketball, you can play basketball for 15 minutes or you can play it for a full game. Um, it's just a matter of your energy and your and and uh, your, you know, the muscles you develop. Um, but I had time and I had um, interest and uh, I didn't have a deadline. You know, there was no deadline. It was just a matter of uh, once you had that manuscript and yeah, it was it was ready to go and you know get polished and all that stuff. But yeah, it was it was a lot. It was like like the news business, but only more so. <laughs> so I hope that answers your question. I think it does. Yeah, I feel like I owe you some sort of apology on behalf of the historical profession for A, making you do indexing and B, <laughs> making you learn a new style because that's always a, a big hassle. So gratitude to you for doing that. Well, I think that people, you know, academic, uh, people get involved in academic journals and um, scholarly research and stuff like that can uh, empathize with, with what I'm talking about. This, this Chicago style and all all those rules, um, you know, it's a different. It's just a different playground, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's a gracious way of uh, of describing that. Yeah, in your book, we should be talking about Lucy Gwynn. We should ask you a few okay. questions about that. So, in your book, you describe Lucy Gwynn's induction into quote disability nation. Yeah. And comes after she experiences a traumatic brain injury um, in a car accident. So even though Gwen becomes descriptively disabled following this accident, can you say a little bit more about how she becomes politicized, right, as a disability activist? Yeah, okay, I think I understand your question. Um, well, here's the thing what happened with, with Lucy Gwen is that she gets into an accident, she goes into the hospital, you know, the ambulance takes her away She's in a hospital for a while. They care, care for her. Um, they see that she's got traumatic brain, brain injury. She's uh, behaving uh, erratically. Um, she doesn't like being there. She's strapped down to some degree. Um, she uh, lashes out at some of her nurses. Um, they decide they need to medicate her and that she needs to be treated at another, a specialized facility, a rehab facility that, that deals with brain injured people. Um, and that's what they do. They send her to this rehab facility and she feels as if she's a hostage, that she loses her any agency over her, her body um, and her care and what care is administered. And she, she indicates that it was, it was very modest essentially she felt that the rehab facility was shaking down her insurance company and the insurance companies of other patients not providing any services simply collecting hundreds of dollars a day on her bed that was filled and um, so she gets politicized because she realizes something's wrong here and um, she gets angry and she 
gets a friend of hers to break her out of that rehab facility after about three weeks. Um, and she goes back to Rochester, New York, and she takes her anger out on this rehab chain. At the time, I, th I believe they were the largest rehab chain in the uh, uh, brain rehabilitation or uh, head injury rehabilitation field. And she gets politicized because she realizes that politicians, public's, public prosecutors, investigatory agencies might be able to do something about this. And that's what she did. She starts writing to politicians, to health departments, to prosecutors, um, to the FBI, and she gets, uh, I guess, politicized. I mean, she makes this a political matter. She uh, takes it to the government. Is that what you were trying to get at? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Um, no, I thought that you you describe really, really effectively in the biography the ways that um, this traumatic brain injury, as a result of this car crash, uh, resulted in a series in a series of events. Um, Gwen's institutionalization, uh, her the mistreatment that she experienced there, uh, the experiences of injustice that she witnessed. Uh, while, while she was institutionalized, um, all were galvanizing or politicizing experiences. Mm -hmm. But in, in the biography, you also mentioned that after that initial kind of site or scene of politicization um, at that rehabilitation center, that Gwyn's political education in disability rights also came out of relationships that she would subsequently go on to build with other disabled activists, artists, writers. Um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more with us about who were some of Gwen's teachers, who were her collaborators, yeah. as she started to understand herself as a disabled person and as a disabled political advocate. Yeah, okay, well, you're right. Um, well, she, um, she was like me when she started this whole journey. She didn't know much about disability rights movement. She didn't know much about the issues. She walked by people who had disabilities and didn't give much thought to their lives and their uh, issues, okay? Um, I, th I, I think that, um, you know, she, as a matter of fact, in one of her speeches, when she was talking about um, what she was doing, she started becoming, a, a, after she created Mouth Magazine and started writing about these issues, she started becoming in demand uh, for uh, speeches and things like that. And she says in one of her speeches that she was dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to these kind of matters. Um, she had to learn from um, day one. First, she, she learned by looking around and seeing what people were like her were, were going through um, at the rehab facility. And then she started getting on the phone and talking to everybody who had been in uh, rehab at, these, at, at any of the facilities that were run by this chain. She created a, 
a network of people that she was talking to about what was going on inside. Um, and then she started talking to disability rights leaders, all of them, you name any of them that were on the planet when she was doing this work and she, she would have interviewed them and, and interacted with them. Some of them were big influences on them. Um, and I could rattle off all the names. You look at any disability rights um, catalog of leaders uh, who were alive in the, in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. She interviewed them all. They helped her understand what their agendas were, what their concerns were. And I'll tell you right now, uh, and this is not a, a criticism, this is just an observation. And this is probably a fact. Um, I don't know where you, you folks are who are listening to this podcast, but if you got in your car right now and went to your local mall and talked to a hundred people and asked them for the names of one or any disability rights leaders in the, in the, in the movement for disability rights, pre-Americans with Disabilities Act and post, anytime, name one. You walk up to a hundred people in the mall and ask them for the names of a women's suffrage uh, movement leader. You probably get one or two names. Um, an abolitionist leader, a uh, anti-war Vietnam War movement leader, a uh, gay rights leader, any, you name it, a civil rights leader. Okay, you better get somebody out of 100 who would say, you know, come up with Susan B. Anthony or John Brown or uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, you know, uh, Abby Hoffman, you, you name it. Martin Luther King better come out of somebody's mouth, right? Harvey Milk. Okay, one disability rights leader. There are, there are many, there are dozens. How many can you name? So if I asked you, it, you know, you asked me the question, who did she go to? She went to them all and any of them are alive. But, um, you know, nobody knows who these people are. I sprinkled their names in my book. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do in this book is I wanted the, the book to be read. And I didn't want it to be an encyclopedia of the, the disability rights movement. I sprinkled names that you can easily Google and, and find out about these people. Um, names and a little background. And what, what this was a narrative non, nonfiction uh, biography. It was done in a, in, in a structure uh, that was a journalistic structure, right? There, you, you won't see the word. This was not an III, and this was not a, um, one of these hero worship biographies. It was a biography about a woman in her life, and she happened to be very active in the disability rights movement. I didn't want it to be all about the disability right, rights movement, but I wanted that to be the heartbeat, yeah, kind of like a drumbeat in the background. And you knew it was around. You knew there was something going on, and she was covering it, and there were people involved in it besides herself. She was a part of part of a movement, part of a part of that chorus, right? Um, but I mean, I can name the people, but you don't 
they're not going to need they're not going to mean that much to a lot of people but the people that she was really um learning from i mean ed roberts in california um she had a telephone relationship with him and she wrote about him all these people who were the leaders became uh sources for stories in, in mouth magazine her magazine they also became featured um she would do q a's with them what's on their what's on your mind what the issues it was like what kelsey says was or what caroline says that was the, the running feature but it would instead of caroline or kelsey it would be justin dart or um you know ed roberts you know it would be uh mark abristo it'd be um some of the leaders that were out there on the front lines um getting arrested um putting their um rolling down um constitution ab toward the capitol um you know doing all that work out in the field to try to get the ada um passed and then after the ADO was signed into law trying to get it um complied with and improved and what were the other issues i mean just because the ada got passed doesn't mean it gets um implemented or excuse me just doesn't mean that people comply with it and and there were other things they were looking for in terms of uh, um, using money for um, people to get services in the community or at their homes rather than in some kind of institutional setting. I mean, there were all kinds of things that these people were fighting for and uh, demanding and in some cases succeeding and getting. But, um, you know, you name it, uh, Justin Dart, um, was someone who uh, she worked she worked with pretty uh, uh, quite a bit and who respected her quite a bit. Um, and Justin Dart is the closest thing to uh, a leader in in the um, the movement probably that I uh, you know I mean if he's you, you might want to start with him. Um, you I don't know if there is an MLK in the movement, but. Um, perhaps he's as close as you're going to get. Um, that's my, my opinion. That's not necessarily true, but he, you know, he, she was very close with him. Um, but there were a lot of people who in, were uh, leaders in the adapt, uh, organization called adapt, right. Who were actually in the, on the front lines, you know, chaining themselves to, to doors and blocking, uh, government buildings and, um, and and um getting arrested you know these are people nobody knows and she was more i think aligned with them than she was with government people and pe big shots um people uh whose names like i said you would not know um kathleen kleinman and uh, uh michael oxford and uh roland sykes and um, a lot of people like that. I don't know if you know the, the name Wade Blank, um, but Wade Blank, big uh, influence on, on, on her ways of thinking. And she was working with a lot of the people who worked with her, came to work with her um, on the magazine, were people who were in the trenches, including Tom Olin, perhaps the premier uh, preeminent 
photojournalist uh, who's been documenting the, the movement for decades in black and white. Um, so those are some of the names. You can look them all up. Um, and everyone probably deserves a book. Um, so, that, you know, I told you some of my answers will be short, some of them will be long. I'm trying to make them intermediate because what this is this this podcast doesn't go on forever. Uh, what what else can I do for you folks? Oh, no worries at all, Jim. I really appreciate that answer. And just to underline what you were saying about Justin Dart, I'm pretty sure in the photos where um, President George H.W. Bush is, you know, signing the ADA into law, Justin Dart is right next to him, right? So yeah, yeah just yeah. affirming the connection she had with some really extraordinary leaders and uh, really influential people in the field. You're right, Carolyn. In the Rose Garden, when the, the ADA was signed into law in July of 1990, um, the, uh, the, the president was flanked by two people. One was Justin Dart Jr. And he was uh, on one side. On the other side of him was Evan Kemp. And um, Evan Kemp was another person who uh, Lucy worked with. And as a matter of fact, Evan Kemp's um, a widow um, was very active with ADAPT. And uh, she and was a writer for Mouth Magazine. She did a lot of work with, with Lucy. Um, and they worked on some, some projects together. This was before and after Evan passed away. So um, yeah, this, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, a, it's almost a small community of, of people who are very active in the movement. Um, and Lucy was one of part of that community. She made herself part of that community, but she covered it too. That's what an advocacy journal, that's the difference between an advocacy journalist and what I did for my entire career. I mean, I'm a mainstream journalist. I, I, um, I'm a big supporter of, of mainstream media. I love mainstream media. I love the New Haven registers of the world and, um, in the New York Times is and uh, all those, the Washington Posts. But, you know, those mainstream publications had a different way, they have a different way of covering the news, right? Uh, Lucy was an advocacy journalist. She didn't care about balance. She didn't care about both sides particularly. She cared about giving um, her, um, community a voice and to let them know what was going on in connection with um, issues facing them. And this was before the internet, you know, this is before social media. Her, her publication, Mouth, was so important to, to connecting people um, and let, letting them know every two months about protests that have happened or were about to happen about legislation that was being passed or should be passed, about first person stories. What's it like? What are you going through? How do you feel? Thanks for that. I mean, I'd love to ask a little bit more about yeah. Mouth. Were there particular issues um, that, you know, came up over and over again or themes that were kind of um, consistently appearing in this magazine or any particular articles that 
uh, you think were really influential. I'd just love to hear about any kind of standout things, right, that, that emerged as you were looking at this magazine. Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, um, Lucy uh, published a, about more than 100 editions of Mouth from 1990 to 2008. And um, I've read them all. I've read every edition of Mouth Magazine. And it's, it was an education. And that's, that's what she was doing. That, um, she was chronicling the post-ADA period. Um, and nobody, I don't think, did it better. Um, she, uh, now the common, a common, th there were common themes. She was very concerned about Olmsted um, and uh, the, the ability for public money to be used by recipients of public money in a community setting of their choice, um, their home, some other location. Um, that was a very big thing. She was so against institutionalization. Um, it, it abhorred her. Um, it abhorred her so much that it, um, if someone, even a close friend, suggested that it couldn't, that you couldn't release people from institutions, she would literally slap them in the face. And uh, it, she was a woman who had great passion, um, more great passion. I mean, more passion than you can imagine. Uh, more than the average person who is passionate. And um, she had a hard time controlling her passion um, sometimes. But one of the things, another theme that, that um, was prevalent uh, in her coverage was um, her uh, campaign against the right to die lobby the right to die um, movement. Uh, she was part, she created, she was part of a movement called Not Dead Yet. And Not Dead Yet still exists. And she uh, campaigned against uh, Dr. Kevorkian and his ilk, uh, it, uh, that's her word. Um, I, I don't know if your listeners remember Dr. Kevorkian, Kevorkian, but they can certainly look up Jack Kevorkian and see that he was part of a, um, the other side of what she was representing. And, and, and Lucy actually organized a, a big rally outside the United States Supreme Court uh, when they were um, debating um, whether to <coughs> allow the Dr. Kevorkians of the world to continue doing uh, assisted suicide, physicians physician-assisted suicides. Um, uh, so that was a big theme of hers too. But you know, the major theme I think um, that she, or the, the major work she was doing, she, she was chronicling the work of the ADAPT movement, the ADAPT protests. She wanted people to know that there were people like her and others who were willing to go out there and be radicals, to, um, to make noise, to be militants. Um, and she, you know, she, um, I was telling you about how passionate she was. And, you know, 
she would tell you that the disability uh, nation, uh, the disability communities, probably the largest um, minority group in America, right? And a very small fraction of that minority group was active in the movement. It, it, uh, it, it disgusted her to some degree, um, if that's the right word. I, I would say disgust, um, that she couldn't get more people moved toward the movement. And that was one of the things she was trying to do too. Uh, the, the thing about her um, magazine was that it was both educating and writing to the people who were already in the movement, but it was, she was also trying to appeal to others to join, to get, get involved. It's, it's for you too. It's not just for, you know, these people who, who, um, are active and adapt in some of those organized movements. So she was um, educating, um, agitating, um, energizing, trying to excite. Um, and she was doing it coming from, a, you know, the thing is she came from an advertising background. And so she had a way of um, packaging that was, a, a, a very um, accessible. Um, she had a way of capturing your imagination and, and putting together stories and magazines and, and, and uh, pictures and cartoons and witticisms um, that uh, was was compelling, and uh, you know whether you agreed with her position or not, it was tough to, to tough to not notice it. Um, and a lot of people really looked forward to their next uh, edition, next issue of Mouth Magazine because she didn't know what she was going to, how she was going to package, what she was going to lead with. Um, the covers of Mouth Magazine, and I'm talking about in the 90s, in the you know the 2000s. This she was putting stuff on the cover of Mouth Magazine that was um, not stuff you saw on the covers of magazine. If you you were you know if you went to the supermarket nowadays, you see all kinds of stuff on the covers of magazines. But in the 1990s, she was she had uh, she was putting people of color on the covers. Of, magazine. She had um, two women without a stitch of clothes on uh, embracing in wheelchairs. She had um, children. James, I'm wondering if you can actually go back to something that you said yeah. really, really fascinating um, about Lucy's background in advertising and oh, how yeah. it impacted her journalistic style. And you used that language of packaging. Sure. Um, that she packaged her stories in a way that was very unique to her. And you said earlier that as an advocacy journal journalist, she was disinterested in this idea of impartiality, of necessarily telling the story of both sides. Um, 
which meant that she was writing pieces that were intentionally trying to persuade or convince. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you feel her background in advertising and sort of the art of persuasion in advertising impacted yeah. her journalism. Yeah, she, she was uh, influenced by, I mean, all journals are influenced by their backgrounds, right? Um, and what their and their experiences. She did not have one moment of uh, journalism training. She didn't work for her high school, uh, you know, yearbook or or newspaper. Um, she didn't go to college. She was just well read and very smart. Uh, some people use the word genius. I think that word gets thrown around too much. But I don't know what genius was, but she was very bright. And I read her, her work, her work was, her writing was excellent. Um, but getting back to uh, advocacy journalism and packaging, um, she, uh, I think she understood um, because of her advertising backgrounds, background, how to put together short, and um, clever uh, headlines, um, graphics, uh, images. Um, she understood that with um, a, a turn of a phrase, you could um, capture someone's imagination. Um, she came up, I, I believe it was she, came up with the phrase handy captivity, right? I mean, she would come up with words like that, phrases like that. Um, and they're like, where do these come, where do they come from? You know, uh, they're coming from probably a very um, exercised brain, a trained brain who had been in many smoke-filled brainstorming sessions um, in advertising. Okay, how do we get somebody to buy that cleaning agent, those brand flakes? Um, you know what I mean? It's like, how do we get them? And you know, one of the things that she regretted about her brilliance is that um, she um, could put together an ad that housewives would watch. And in a survey after the ad ran, would get excellent ratings. And then she would realize that um, some, something that she spent all, you know, a great deal of her effort on was simply gonna sell some Mr. Clean um, so that you could get those spots underneath the refrigerator cleaned. And um, it bummed her out that this was, this was the, her, her um, her way of getting a fat paycheck. She ended up, she ended up skipping the rest of that career. She quit it at age 30. She could have easily, you know, in the nineties, or excuse me, what am I talking about? She turned, uh, she turned 30 in, in 1960. Let's see, I gotta do the, the math now. Yeah, 1973. She turns 30, she born in, born in 43. 73, she says, you know, I don't want to lie for a living anymore, right? So uh, it, she ends up, like, like uh, we, were, we were discussing, talking, I mean, 
she has this background. She knows how to do this. She could have easily made six figures for the rest of her life. Um, it wasn't for her. Um, she found a purpose um, in this magazine, and, but she had skills. And um, one of the things she did was she did study um, some magazines that she thought were uh, getting through. And one of the magazines that influenced her was a, a, a magazine called Madness Network News. And it, it, um, it targeted um, the uh, psychiatric industry. And it was, um, it was particularly against uh, shock therapy, right? So she knew that if you had a target, if you had an enemy, um, you could focus your um, resources toward that enemy. And to her, she was in a war. And her war was with all those people who were oppressing and um, not recognizing the needs and the civil rights and the humanity of people who were her audience. And she knew how to reach that audience. She figured it out. Um, she figured out that graphics, um, bold statements, some humor, and absolute um, willingness to share her pages with people who are going through the struggles. There were a lot of first-person narratives that she would have in her, her magazine. She realized that people like to talk and share, share, about, share their experiences. And she gave them an opportunity to do that. Um, I, I don't know where that came from. I don't know if that came from the, the um, advertising industry or not, but maybe it did because like I told you before, um, her um, advertising campaigns and the success of them um, were tested. As soon as a, bit, a new ad ran, uh, for instance, on a Sunday night or on a weekend, that Monday morning, there would be survey teams calling up people at their homes saying, did you, were you watching a show last night? Did you see the ad? Did it appeal to you? And so they got feedback. Um, I think she understood that, that feedback um, can, can lead to a successful campaign. Um, but I don't know. I, I never got to interview her and I never saw in her her many journals and, and uh, records, um, the theory that she had. I'm simply reading between the lines after reading over a hundred uh, editions of Mouth Magazine that she had a flair. She had a way of, of writing short. Um, she would have a, at the end of, or in, usually at the end of every magazine, she would have a, a, like an editor's note this is what's on my mind. It was short, it was sweet, it was personal. Um, uh, and uh, I think she understood that, you know, small, um, uh, small bites of powerful words um, can be penetrating. Um, 
I, th I think that was her style. And it, 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 may be it may be traced to the ad business. I think so. I, I, like I said, you're, you're influenced by your experiences. I, I mean, you've already alluded to this to some extent, Jim, but you're welcome to say more about it. Were there places that Lucy really sort of diverged from or was distinct from other activists yeah. of her time, whether in terms of her beliefs or her tactics? Yeah, I think there's, yeah, she will. I think she was distinct from a lot of people, um, whether, you know, it was a journal, you know, a journalist or others. But one of the things that, um, What's clear about her is that she um, was, in her mind, very clear on what she wanted, um, and and what she thought was right, and even close associates, people who'd done, you know, gone through the, um, some tough times with her, she would um, disagree with fiercely um, and uh, wasn't, she wasn't easy to deal with as a result. And she didn't care that she wasn't easy to deal with. A lot of people care, you know, they wanna be collegial, they wanna um, go along. Um, but that didn't seem to, to be an obstacle for her. Um, but what, one of the things that she also was, that, that made her a little different is that there were other publications writing about the disability rights movement, um, but none as um, in your face as mouth. She believed that you had to really grab people and shake them. And um, I think her style was to um, not hold back, not to pull punches. Um, she would even criticize um, allies if she thought they weren't um, living up to her standards, doing enough, uh, doing it right from her perspective, um, being militant enough, being, um, agitating enough um so she she held um like i said allies to her standards for instance there was one individual who ran a very big uh a program for people with disabilities in uh in, in the united states a very big program and this person um built uh got lots of grants and got lots of uh, money and was able to build a new facility, a nice new facility to provide services. But Lucy went after this person for, because this facility was built outside of town, not on the bus line, right? How do people get their services? She was very concerned about this and she took this person to task. Um, you know, this is a person who was an ally um, who nobody took the task. She took them to task. So she didn't care who you were or what, what you were. 
um, if you didn't live up to, to, to her standards, she was going to criticize you. And she did. She, and believe me, you didn't want to get criticized by her. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she packed a wallop. Um, and, and so that, that's the kind of, uh, she was policing um, not just what the, 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 the government agencies were doing or not doing not just what the Department of Justice was doing or not doing in terms of making sure uh, violators of the, of the ADA were um, prosecuted or um, sued or whatever. She wasn't just going after those public agencies. She went after her allies um, and criticized them and said, you could do better. You can rethink this. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, she was, she actually had a, a, a column that she ran in, in uh, Mouth Magazine for a while. It was called The Bestest and Worstest Sills. Sills being Centers for Independent Le Living. And she would go out with, when out, uh, with one of her colleagues, some of her staffers would, would sometimes visit some of these centers for for independent living, they get in the car and they go drive there, and they'd ask them for their uh, 990s, those being um, uh, IRS documents that uh, 501c3 not-for-profits have got to generate, and uh, and look at you know how much you were getting paid, you know how much money you were bringing in, and the services you were providing. You know this this was this is a woman doing investigative reporting, you know who, like I said, was not trained to do this stuff. It just occurred to her, this is something we ought to do. And believe me, you did not want to be on the bestest or, or on the worstest sill list. You wanted to be on the bestest sill list. And, you know, this is, this is unique. This, uh, people weren't doing this kind of stuff. And this is one of the things that um, she also was trying to do is, um, educate mainstream media journalists um, about ways you could approach covering the movement. Um, you know, I worked for mainstream ma media all my life, and I still do. And uh, how well or how poorly did we cover this movement? And you think about all the movements to get front page coverage in the history of movements, um, how well did we cover? Have we covered? Are we covering this continuing movement? Uh, she was very concerned about trying to get people in mainstream media to take attention and make it make this part of their their coverage. Um, one of the things she did, she put together packages of information that she sent out to mainstream media editors and said, hey, look at this is what's going on. You might be interested in it. You might want to send somebody out to cover this. Um, how many advocacy journalists do this? You know, I mean, she was doing stuff. Uh, you know, I think she was she was working hard at her craft and I think that if you wanted to look at, I teach mainstream media techniques. That's what I do. But if you want to, if you want to learn 
how to become uh, advocacy journalist and to do it effectively, I would say, get yourself some copies of Moth Magazine. Okay. Oh my gosh, that was such a brilliant answer. And there are so many different directions that I could go in. I have a lot of questions for you. Um, Follow-ups are okay, they're, they're permitted. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, but I wanted to pick up something that you said earlier about the ways that Lucy Gwynn was unafraid of sort of taking on allies. So yeah. addressing other advocates, and I hadn't made this connection until just now, but because she wasn't um, writing for a mainstream media like news outlet, she was very much catering to a specific audience. She was addressing advocates and activists. Um, that meant that she could she could be inclusive of a different range of issues in mainstream media. There's an assumption that you're not writing for kind of this niche uh, market or readership of disabled people necessarily. Um, I think a lot of the mainstream media coverage that I've seen about disability rights issues takes on a sort of educational tone of trying to teach able-bodied people um, about the disability rights movement or about disability. Um, and Mouth Magazine was unique in that it was the voice of activists and advocates mm -hmm. talking to each other somewhat. Yeah. So I, I wanna zero in on the relationship between mouth and major disability rights organizations like ADAPT, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and for those of you listening who haven't heard of ADAPT before, this uh, stands for American Disabled for Attendant Programs Today. And I'm wondering, Jim, if you can say a little bit more about the role that Mouth played, um, both in supporting organizations like ADAPT, but also challenging their approaches, yeah. their strategies for organizing. Yeah, well, you know, mostly, um, I would say that Mouth Magazine was an ally of ADAPT and a supporter and... Uh, they carry, Mouth covered ADAPT's actions. And when I say actions, an action in ADAPT speak is a demonstration, a protest, um, an activity, an event. So they covered these actions where people would um, go to Washington in particular. Usually um, they would um, be uh, meeting in some, usually, uh, they would have one big action a year, usually in some city, uh, but they often were doing things in DC and, and mouth covered these things. And they covered the, the personalities, people who were adapt leaders. They would, and they photographed them. Um, they were more supportive than, than anything, but, but look at um, the, she, if, she had writers with different perspectives and she supported their perspectives uh, and she had her own perspective. Um, everybody, every movement has divisions. Every movement has uh, differences of opinions. Um, and even, you know, uh, 
you know, the, the local, the New York media covers the New York Yankees, right? They generally want the New York Yankees to win. And when they don't win, they get down on them, right? When the manager loses, when, they, when he makes a decision that costs a game, they criticize, right? There are things you do when you're covering a movement, even if you're supportive of the movement, that um, you point out. And she was willing to, to point things out, whether she believed in them or not sometimes. For instance, one of her writers, uh, one of her very talented writers, was covering the movement and had an observation that the movement's actions, the adapt philosophy of going to a, a public building and blocking the entrance and requiring police officers to clear the field so that people, members of the public could enter, uh, employees of that agency could enter or exit, um, that maybe it was not the way Martin Luther King would want a movement conducted in peace and, and with love. And there might be another better way because isn't it violent to require a 160-pound man who happens to be a police officer to pick up a 260-pound wheelchair and with somebody in it and move it and ruin their backs and uh, be on unemployment or workers' compensation, whatever it is. Is that the right way to do things? Um, she allowed this writer to write a column, a perspective piece about this. And it was very critical about the way uh, ADAPT was led. Now, you can argue, and, and maybe this would be a good subject for further review, that ADAPT at one point, at least in its, its uh, evolution, was male-dominated um, and didn't listen to a lot of women and their perspectives, and, and that was something that um, that might be it might be true, might not be. Maybe it's unfair. But one of the things this writer did was said that the the, the adapt leadership did not listen to all perspectives, was not open to different views, um, and that they could learn from what other people were thinking and talking about relative to their philosophy of actions, of protests. Maybe there was another way to do things. Should we talk about it? So it was a, quite a, a provocative piece. Now, I don't know if Lucy agreed with every word of it, but she allowed it to run. And it really got Adapt upset. And some people, according to what I'm told, canceled their subscriptions. Lucy was willing to do that. Now, I don't, I don't know that it made her comfortable. I'm not saying that she uh, didn't care. I'm not saying that she was um, not afraid to do that. She might have been afraid and still allowed it to happen. But she was afraid, she, she allowed her writers to have an opinion. And at the same time, like I said, Lucy would be willing to write about some of the divisions, some of the concerns. Um, just like a Yankee beat writer would be willing to write about 
some of the things that were causing damage to the local team, the Bronx Bombers. So, um, you know, it was uh, it was a way of of um, I think being responsible while still supportive of the movement, a way of being a responsible uh, watchdog, um, by, but at the same time rooting for them. Um, you know, I mean, she, she would participate in some of their actions. She would hand out, um, you, know, you know, protest banners and she was active with them, covering them while, they, while she was participating in them. I mean, that, it's like, you can't do that as a journalist, right? You can't do that as a mainstream journalist. There's no rooting in the press box, right? You don't care if the Yankees win or lose. You're not supposed to show it. Um, but she cared and she showed. And um, that's the difference between advocacy journalism and, and what a lot of other people practice. Um, I think, I hope I answered your question. It was a very good question. And I, I, I hope I, I, I gave it justice. You, you absolutely did it justice. And I loved what you said about how she viewed, it sounds like she viewed publishing a multiplicity of perspectives, mm -hmm. even if she understood that um, there could be an outcry. Yeah, there, were, there would be and, repercussions. Right. Um, that she felt like she had a responsibility yeah. to publish a multiplicity of perspectives. And it's making me think about, um, honestly, conversations that I've had with contemporary disability justice adv advocates or activists. And from what I understand about movement history, um, there is often some discord or some anxieties about this idea of airing your dirty laundry, of yeah. publishing uh, work uh, or speaking openly about dissent within the ranks um, because it could be perceived as revealing a weakness. Yeah. You might want to keep under wraps so that it doesn't fall into the hands or the mouths of people uh, with more power who could shoot down um, a new movement of minoritized people. Um, but in the conversations that I've had with other activists, I've really appreciated this reframing of critique as a demonstration of love and support, mm. um, as an extension of this idea of responsibility that we want to create strong movements that are responsive to a multiplicity of perspectives that adopt a variety of strategies. Uh, and I think that Lucy Gwynn, her publication history, the way that you've written about it, really embodies that uh, kind of showing up as an advocate um, by showcasing the many different perspectives that comprise a movement and giving them space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned a publication that I don't remember the name of earlier, Madness. Madness Network, Madness Network News. Madness Network News. And I know in the biography, you also mention uh, Disability Rag, which would become Ragged Edge. And I, I think that that predated, but also ran concurrently alongside. Yes, that. you're ex exactly right. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so I'd love to hear more about the ways that Mouth was distinct as a publication. Uh, what were the differences between Mouth and other publications like Ragged Edge? Um, and did you get the sense that Mouth inspired other disability rights or disability justice publications um, after after it stopped running? Yeah, well, that that's a lot of that's a lot of good questions. And let me see if I can address address it from the beginning. The um, in terms of um, Madness Net Network News, that went out of that phased out uh, by the time Ma Mouth um, hit the streets. It was, um, but it was a in the. It, it was a publication that definitely inspired her, um, and in terms of Mary Johnson's work with Ragged Edge and the Disability Rag, the two of them uh, worked uh, in as as kind of allies, but in different um, ways. Um, Mary Johnson's publication, Mary Johnson was more wedded to trying to cover the movement in a mainstream manner. Um, she was influenced by mainstream journalism. Um, it, it, I, if memory serves me correctly, her husband was a mainstream journalist. Um, and Mary's, Mary played it, uh, played it a little more straight, right? Now, the interesting thing is that many of the writers or several writers who worked for Mary, including Lucy sometimes, uh, and several uh, uh, photojournalists who worked for, for Mary also worked for Lucy. The difference was the approach, okay? Now, um, there are ways to uh, approach a story that, that are different, right? And you, you, you see it all the time. Um, news happens in Washington. You read it in one publication, then you see it, how it appears in another publication, or you see it on one cable channel, and then you see it on another cable channel, and you realize the same story can be packaged, and the themes can be uh, changed, and the emphasis can be um, different, um, right? And it depends on the audience you're trying to capture and, and speak to and energize and agitate. Okay, you see it very clearly. And unfortunately, uh, this is the way journalism is produced um, when, um, when divisions and um, are exploited. Um, now, Lucy was writing uh, Mouth Magazine at a different time, a different era. Um, there was no uh, CNN at the time. There was no, uh, you name, you name the, the letters, they weren't there. All we had was a handful of, of networks and we had Lucy packaging and and we had had her doing it in a way that maybe maybe her way is influencing some of the ways we see news packaged now, right? I, I haven't really given it that much thought, but when you look at the way she packaged, like I told you before, 
she was not that concerned with both sides. Uh, you could find both sides, but you, she wasn't concerned about both sides. She was concerned about appealing and informing her people, her community, Disability Nation, of things she thought they should know about, that should be that they should be incensed about, that they should be active um, writing their legislators. This is back when people actually wrote letters. They didn't text. They didn't write write emails. Okay, they didn't put stuff on social media. They didn't sh they didn't didn't shame anybody on 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 Instagram. So um, she wanted them to take action. Okay, and Mary Johnson had a different way of approaching things, and she did it very well. I, I, someone should write a book about Mary Johnson and her publication. Um, that's for someone else to do, maybe. But um, Lucy, uh, in terms of influencing and what, what I think I've explained to you the difference between her approach and others. And in terms of influencing others who are now doing stuff. Now, Mouth, Mouth went out of business in, in 2008. <clears throat> Lucy died in 2014, six, six years later. Uh, she was failing. Uh, uh, physically um, in 2008. They were trying to find somebody else to, to take over mouth. They were unsuccessful. Um, and I don't think there is anything I'm told, at least by people of Lucy's generation, um, people who subscribed to mouth, who look forward to it, that there is nothing that's filled the void. Now, that may be argued, that could be argued. The thing is that the new generation of uh, disseminators of information, you can, they have publications online, they have blogs, they have um, things that aggregate. Um, they're doing something. They're, they're a younger generation. They have a different approach. They have a different way of appealing um but some of these people i suspect don't even know who lucy Gwynn was um maybe they'll read the book maybe they'll discover her um but they're young and they're doing things that um they're getting the word out they're getting it the word out in their way and so there is um some there are people doing things in the vein of Lucy Gwynn. I don't, I don't think anybody's doing it quite the same way, but um, they may not even be aware that there is some, uh, that they have a predecessor who was doing this kind of work. On, on this topic of legacy, one of the things that I appreciated so much was how accessibly written this biography is. And I can imagine it having appeal both to very academic, formal disability historians, but also activists and advocates. Um, I imagine we'll also be reading this book and it's exciting to imagine uh, that a young disabled journalist or like someone working on a podcast 
could interact with and read your book and be inspired by Lucy Gwynn's approach to journalism and storytelling. Um, I really think that that's a distinct possibility and it's really exciting. I have another legacy question for you that picks up on something that you mentioned earlier about sort of what were the, the hot spots uh, for Lucy in terms of her advocacy work? What did she feel the most passionate about um, in terms of the issues that uh, she was foregrounding or showcasing the most? Uh, and you mentioned that she wrote and organized around corruption in the rehabilitation industry. Uh, she organized and wrote about physician-assisted suicide um, in part through the organization of Not Dead Yet. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about what impact you think her work had um, over time uh, when it comes to taking on the rehabilitation industry um, or through the legacy of Not Dead Yet. So thinking more about physician-assisted suicide and people who've organized against that issue. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> I wish I could quantify um, that her, uh, how her efforts might have moved the needle um, uh, in the direction that she was trying to move it on the issues that she, she cared about so much. But I, I will say that if you just start at the onset, the thing that got her going to begin with, the head injury rehab industry, okay, she wrote about it. Um, she, that was what the publication was first known for. And the publication was first known as This Brain Has a Mouth, okay? And uh, it later became simply Mouth Magazine because she was including uh, people of all, all walks, um, not just people who were uh, brain injury survivors or survivors of brain injury like herself. But when she first was... Uh, waging uh, her campaign against the rehab industry and writing about it, she was also imploring federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, anybody to do something about the brain injury rehab industry. And she got uh, the, she was part of the reason, maybe a big part of the reason that uh, a very large chain broke up. And uh, the FBI did investigate that chain. They, they um, as a matter of fact, carted away 750 boxes of materials. At the time, the uh, agent in charge said it was the biggest raid in terms of volume of material taken from uh, one of their targets. And, they investigated. And while that investigation was going on, um, at about the same time, congressional hearings took place uh, looking into the brain injury rehab industry. And a big reason that the congressional hearings took place is because there was somebody in Rochester, New York, making a lot of noise about the lack of care and the amount of insurance money that was going into questionable, if any, service to people 
who needed service, who needed help. And, um, and Lucy testified at that hearing. And uh, it was conducted by a guy named Ted Weiss, a con congressman who cared about civil rights matters quite a bit. And uh, that, that hearing um, took place in, in 1992. Lucy wrote on Mouth Stationery, Mouth Magazine Stationery, she wrote a very um, effective piece of testimony for that hearing <clears throat> that's in the, in the record. And uh, one of the things that she talks about is the questionable care and um, but she also talks about brain injury and talks about how there are no two cases of brain injury that are the same. You know, brain injury, if you read between the lines, what she's telling you, it's not like breaking a leg or breaking an arm, in which you get an x-ray and you can see where the break is and you can see where the repair is, right? And she's, it's not like that. And she was trying to explain that, um, Brain injured people are unique uh, people and every injury is different. Um, and she was trying to explain to them what she, in 1992, was going through, the frustration that some entity could, from her perspective, milk the system and, allow, and be allowed to do this. And she got them, she got this before a, a congressional panel. She, she got, People from New Medico, the, 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 uh, the chain that she was particularly concerned about, testified. Former employees supported her perspective, um, some of them. Now, New Medico was never charged with any crime. And um, it's, it's important to note that, that even despite the FBI investigation, that um, there were never any criminal, criminal or civil charges, um, but they did break apart. They sold off their businesses and they were investigated. Now, was that an, something that Lucy was, uh, should be credited for? Um, I'll, I'll leave it to you. I mean, I'm, I'm just writing. I, I, I wrote like, like I told you, I've, I wrote this uh, biography as a journalist. This is a, a, a journalistic product. Journalists don't put opinions in their, in their copy, okay? So you don't know, if you read my stories, you don't know if I'm a supporter of Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Hillary or any of the other galaxy of politicians out there. I just write, okay? You decide what's, you read between the lines, you determine. So uh, I can't tell you what her legacy specifically is. I can tell you that she wrote an awful lot about um, how the Department of Justice had a, a very powerful tool to make sure that people with disabilities um, were treated uh, in a certain manner and that public buildings and any public entity that got public money or any entity that got public money had to do certain things 
to make sure that the the playing field was was uh, was equal. That that uh, elevators, bathrooms, drinking fountains, hallways, entrances to buildings, exits to buildings were built a certain way. Um, now, like I said, just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it's going to happen. I'm sure you can you can go down, you could probably go out and, see, and find buildings that are under construction with public money that are not ADA compliant. You can find um, hiking paths, bike trails, snowmobile trails, you name it, okay? Can everybody use them, right? This is a little bit of a pivot, uh, Jim, but I wanted to say, really compliment you on how personable and intimate your writing style is in, the, in this story. And I think that it really beautifully reflects Lucy Gwynn's character. You've already mentioned that she wasn't too concerned with being likable. She could be combative. She could be fiery. She was very persistent and she was a really passionate person. And I think that your writing style captures that com combativeness and her tendency towards being an agitator for change. Mm -hmm. And you also do a really good job of, I think, balancing uh, Lucy's involvement with mouth and with uh, the disability rights movement and grounding uh, the story that you're telling in a more personal familial life history. And one thing that you write about extensively um, in giving this backstory about her family, uh, you mentioned details about the deaths of her parents and her sister. Yep. And I remember one passage from the book uh, you write about Gwyn's own self-awareness of having an overdue bill, like that's the language, that you use an overdue bill as the only remaining member of her immediate family. And I'm curious if you can say a little bit more, um, and I know that this might just be you inferring, like based on the sources um, that you encountered about Gwyn's life, how you think Gwen's really personal relationship to death and illness and suicide and institutionalization in her family went on to influence her disability politics after yeah. her car crash. Yeah, well, you know, again, like I was, I mentioned to you earlier, Kelsey, is, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm not a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Uh, I've never studied, studied Freud. Um, I, um, I know of these theories and philosophies out there. But what I would say is that I would restate what I said to you before that, you know, you are you bring to your writing and to your work, you know, your experiences, and she had some tough experiences. Um, it's clear to me that uh, her um, upbringing in Indianapolis in a creative family with a father who was in the ad advertising business and a, white, uh, and a mother who was an educator and an artist um, affected her. And the fact that the, 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 
it's very clear that the father was a very dominating figure, a big personality, um, a drinker. Um, and he left the family several times and then completely. And, and he died um, in uh, a situation which his, his brain and his skull enlarged. He, um, it, was a, it was a tough death. And his, her mother died of some sort of dementia or Al Alzheimer's situation. I'm not quite clear which it was. Um, her, her sister, who was her best friend, died suddenly and abruptly as, as a 21 year old in 1968. She didn't make it out of the 60s. Now the older sister lives on, perseveres, um, bounces back. Um, and is an adventurer and in, in, in is searching um, and is carrying um, the weight of loss around for a long time and maybe the guilt associated with some of these losses. Um, it's, it weighs on her. Uh, her father behaves as a man, um, I can't say that he was suicidal, but he behaves in a way that is somewhat reckless. Um, the mother at one time asks Lucy to put her out of her misery. The, the sister is suicidal. Lucy reveals that she has suicidal ideation. Um, and then when all these people are no longer on the planet, when her mother finally passes away, Lucy's alone. She's the last member of her family. And uh, there are a lot of people in the world who go through uh, mental illness, periods of depression. Um, and I think Lucy can relate to that or related to that. Um, and she had some low periods and she wrote about it and she talked about it. And that phrase that you just referred to uh, is something that she thought about. She thought about ending her life when her, when her sister died, but she didn't want to do that because her mother was still alive. Now when her mother passes away, She's wondering if this is the right opportunity to, to get to that item on her checklist. Um, she didn't do it, as you know, and she lived for another 25 years. And what she did with that extra 25 years that could have been um, snuffed out somehow. Um, was a lot. It was a hundred over a hundred issues of Mouth Magazine. It was a lot of connecting people in the disability community to each other and letting them know about things that were going on in the movement and in their lives. Um, 
it's uh, it's one of the powerful themes of the story, if you ask me. I mean, that's one of the reasons you want to do a book about it like this is like, what did someone accomplish after they got up off the mat? Right. Um, some people don't get off the mat. She did. That's that's one of the things that separates her and uh, distinguishes her. Um, right. Yeah, and I, I think that what you're describing um, is also sort of the beauty of biography as a genre. Uh, you really beautifully capture a, a multi-dimensional history of a human being. Um, I loved that this wasn't just the, uh, the publication history of mouth, uh, that we really get comprehensive insight into formative experiences from Lucy's childhood, uh, relationships to family members that further flesh out, um, even though we can't say definitively, like you said, you never got to interview Lucy Gwynn or ask her questions about the ways that her life history influenced her politics. But as a reader, when given that information, you can ask more questions. Um, about what, what were potentially the many different influences that went into her politicization eventually. Um, and it, it was really, really beautifully rendered. Well, here, here's the thing, Kelsey. Thank you very much for that, for saying that. I appreciate it. But um, Lucy lived for 71 years, right? Um, a lot of things, a lot of moments happen in 71 years. Um, and I learned about a lot of the big moments of her life. And what I, wanna, what I wanted to do is not just write about what she did as a disability rights activist and, and advocacy journalist. That was one of the things she did for a big chunk of her life. I wanted to figure out how Lucy became Lucy. And I wanted to help the reader to kind of understand how she became who she became, because, um, you know, as you were trying to, I think, ask before um, about how she approached her journalism, how she approached her activism. And I, it gets back to everybody carries with them in their field of work, their background and where they came from. And, the things that uh, bruised them and scarred them and um, made them who they are. So I wanted to go figure out where she was bruised, how she was scarred. Um, and she left a pretty good trail for me. Um, uh, she was not quiet about her thoughts. Um, she, this brain had a mouth. And she talked to a lot of people and told them a lot of things. I talked to a lot of those people. They remembered a lot of the things she told them. Um, she was not easy to forget. She also left a lot, a, quite a legacy of writing. And like I told you, when we started this conversation, a lot of it was at the archive. A lot of it happened to be in other people's private collections. 
many people opened up um, very important uh, private collections to me, very important. And um, Lucy also wrote a memoir in 1980, it came out in 1982, we, we neglected to mention this, well before she got into the disability rights movement. She was searching, she was a, an adventurer, and she spent a year uh, on big, very large boats as a deckhand servicing the oil rigs off the coast of Louisiana. Okay, now you could have written a book about Lucy Gwynn that point in her life. She was a very interesting person. She knew that her year of experience in a male-dominated field in, um, was a good feminist story, and she wrote it. She was a first-time writer, writing a memoir, and Viking Press read her manuscript and said, I'm gonna, pu I'm gonna publish this woman's work. It's pretty well done. Lucy at this time was in her 30s, right? First time, first time memoir. Okay, you write your memoir when you're 30, 32, 35, okay? Call up Viking, tell them you got a, a manuscript wait, waiting for, for them that they've got to publish. And you wait for the rejection, okay? It's gonna come. Don't feel, don't feel bad. It, it, it happens to everybody. Lucy didn't get rejected. Her book comes out in 1982, Going Overboard, the onlyest little woman in the offshore, offshore oil fields. And come on, you kidding me? Woman didn't go to college. Not only didn't she didn't not only didn't she go to Yale. She didn't go to any college. She didn't go to anywhere. So uh, you know, she's a remar remarkable uh, communicator. And uh, this is after she was in the advertising business for a while, but she was a remarkable communicator. She put together sentences very effectively. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm sitting up in that archive and I'm reading this stuff. And I'm saying, saying to myself, somebody ought to write a book about this woman. And um, the first publisher I went to with the pitch, agreed. I was, I was ready for the rejections. I was lucky too. I mean, I didn't get it. Viking, I didn't even try Viking. I tried the university press route. Um, but uh, my, my hat is off to the University of Massachusetts Press that, that saw it as I did. This, this was a, a compelling story um, about a woman and her life and her interesting um, work in the field of uh, disability rights. So um, I hope you have at least one more question. We do, we do. Um, okay. I, so a couple of times you've mentioned this really fanta fantastic anecdote of going into the archives, um, unsure about what you would find, encountering Lucy Gwynn and looking at all of those materials and realizing like this will support more than like a long form journalistic piece. This is yeah. like a book. I am really curious 
you could reflect a little bit more on um, how your perspective and your approach, your skill set as a journalist, meant that you wrote you wrote this book in particular um, in a way that is likely different than what a disability historian would write because yeah. of your your toolkit um, and your experiences. Um, so, how do you feel like your background as a journalist influenced the shape of this book? what you gravitated towards, the way you wanted to tell the story? Okay, that's a good question. Um, okay, well, let, me, let me see if I could start here. First of all, this, this biography is the work of um, a fellow who has come to appreciate uh, biography uh, in particular and Hist historians in general. Uh, historians and biographers do incredible work. Um, I like memoir. I think memoir is wonderful. There's great memoir out there. And you can learn a lot from memoir. The memoir is one person's perspective about perhaps a slice of their life. And uh, the reliability of memoir is questioned. It can be questioned because the memoirist is writing about his or her own life. They may leave out some stuff that they don't want the reader to know about, right? A lot of memoir is about, I accomplished this, I did, I did that, um, particularly political memoir. Um, and every politician running for, for president runs, writes a memoir. It's all about their accomplishments. Um, Okay, getting back to biography and history. Um, I have been a, a, an investigative reporter for a good deal of my life. And that's a highfalutin phrase. Uh, every reporter is an investigative reporter. Um, you, as a reporter, you're asking questions and looking for things and trying to put together the truth. Um, now, I, I had the, the title of investigative reporter because I got to spend a great deal of time investigating. Um, but every reporter is doing some degree of investigation on every story um, because people just don't show up and give you the story. You have to go out and get it, and then you have to double check it, and you have to verify, and you have to get to the root of information to make sure it's not BS. But um, investigative reporting allowed me to learn how to, to uh, go to public repositories and see what was there and extract information and, and interview documents to see if they, what they told you. Um, and then they also, as a, a reporter in general, I got pretty good at inter interviewing people getting them to talk to me, being willing to, to, to share stuff maybe they wouldn't on first blush want to share with someone, particularly a stranger. Um, so all those things are, are valuable, but getting back to biography and history. And this is not, this is a phrase, I've studied biography. I was trying to become cog, uh, familiar with bio, biographical work and structures. Biographers approach biographies different ways. There's all kinds of different ways you can approach a biography, including 
there are some biographers that get into speculating. He did this, he did that, must be because of. They must have been wanting to do that. They conclude, they suppose, they use words like seems and appears. Um, and there are some biographers that are, do um, psychological biography. They say, well, obviously because this happened to him when he was a child, this is why they grew up to be this way, right? And they get into Freud and, and all this other stuff. And, you know, this, there's different ways to approach biography. And there are many biographies that are 600, 800, 1,000 pages long. Now, I'm a journalist. I know that you try to get to the heart of the matter and you, you respect the reader. You respect the reader's time. Um, but I have a great respect for biography and for history and for historians because what they do, and this is not me who came up with this phrase. I read it somewhere in my research on biography, but I love this phrase. Um, historians are investigative re reporters of the past. And think about that. I, I'm an investigative reporter. I know how hard it is to be an investigative reporter of today. To get to the truth of what happened today is hard. And you see every day on the news and in the newspapers, and particularly in social media, um, people talking about what's going on in the world and it's not true, right? We have all, all this stuff that's available to us to, to check things out, to get to the heart of matters, to weed out the BS from the fact. And we still are deluged by misinformation, disinformation, and it, it's hurtful. So think about historians and what they're doing. They're going back and they're digging out information that is ten, tens of, Ten, decades old, centuries old, people writing about wonderful people who, who haven't lived on this, haven't walked this planet in eons. And they're going out and they're writing biographies about these people. It's amazing what they do. I have great respect for it. So I approached this project with, with deep respect um, and awe for what has been produced in the field of biography. I was going to try to add to that literary universe a short item about a big person. So my thinking, and you, you folks were undergrads not that long ago. I can tell from the sound of your voice. Um, but maybe you can remember way back in your undergraduate days, not you, but maybe some of your classmates did not read every assignment that was assigned, right? Okay, I'm, I'm an instructor at a university. I know that some of my students will read every word and more of what I've assigned. And then there are some students who will not read an assignment that you could read at your average stoplight you know, and it, it's, it's a one minute read, okay? 
Now, I am very cognizant that people's time and interests and uh, are limited. So I wanted to write a biography that was accessible, that someone, if they read the first page, there's a chance they might read the second page. And if they read the second page, maybe they would continue for a couple more pages. And then they would realize, wow, I'm already on the second, second chapter. Now yeah, I'll give it one more chapter, right? Okay, so I, I studied biography and there's some wonderful biographers that have read, that have written some beautiful pieces, much more researched, much better written than, than what I produced. And I learned from them. I saw what they did, their structures. Um, it made sense to me and I distilled and I tried to figure out how I could do that in a shorter piece. And one of the things that I do, uh, Kelsey and Caroline, is I listen to my students. They, I, I learn from them. Um, and what I, I have I encountered, one of the things I do is I talk to my students about what they're reading, okay? <laughs> None of them are reading 1000 word biographies. And some of my students, who aren't particularly good readers, you know, I would ask them, what are you reading? And I would see the, gl the glint in their eye when they talked about the books that really appealed to them. And it, and it struck me that um, one student in particular talked about, and this is, a, this is an author who was on my, my radar for various reasons. A former journalist, a current journalist named Mitch Album, he's read, read. He wrote a book called "The Tuesdays with Maury," short book, um, powerful. And he also wrote a book, Five People You Meet in Heaven," short book, powerful. One's fiction, one's nonfiction. This student talked about how she read. Uh, the fiction book multiple times. And, and this is a woman uh, who didn't do a lot of reading, the assigned reading, okay? Um, and it struck me that you can write a book that's potent, that doesn't have to be a thousand words, that people will remember and talk about and say, to someone else. I've read this book five times, right? And I just want somebody to read this once. Okay, so I had a goal. Short, I wanted to, to include information about the disability rights movement and some of the, the leaders and people who should be recognized. And I wanted it to be a, a, a narrative. And it was structured. Now, at the, at the risk of sounding immodest, I would tell you that my book, or this book, Lucy's book, it's really her book, because it's her words. It's the words she left behind. I just collected them and organized them. Uh, is a book that followed some of the biography that I, that I was uh, influenced by. You start with a life-changing event, 
or you start with a moment that characterizes the person, a significant moment. It does, you don't start the book with a chronology. Caroline was born in Edmonston, you know, the daughter of, right? And uh, she went to public schools and she got all A's. You know, you don't start it from day one. You started with a moment, a significant moment. And I started with a significant moment, a life-changing moment, right? And then you back, back up and then you go back to the chronology and then you bring it back up to that moment. And then what happened after that moment, right? So it's a, it's a structure that I used that I thought was uh, a tried and true. And it's a journalistic structure too. You know, the story starts in one place, in the prologue, it starts one place. And in the epilogue, I return to that place. This is a tried and true uh, journalistic um, structure. Uh, narrative journalism is often this way. You start somewhere, you go full circle and you come back to it. And what, what happens in the middle is the story. Um, and and, and uh, like I said, at the risk of sounding immodest, you, this is a structure a lot of people can use, not just in biography, but in my memoir, in, in, um, in fiction, in all kinds of writing, in creative writing. So, uh, you know, it's, I, didn't, I didn't invent it. I just uh, applied it. And I think the one of the reasons I did it this way is because uh, you asked me, Kelsey, you know, how my, my background in journalism uh, might have uh, impacted this, this report, this, this long report about a woman. Um, this is how, these, these are the things you learn in many years in journalism. You learn how to structure stories different ways. And this is a narrative nonfiction structure, okay? Thank you so much for that, Jim. You look at, I, I feel terrible because I sound like I'm a lecturer. No. I'm trying to, I, I'm really just trying to answer your questions, but they come out like a lecture. I'm sorry about that. And I apologize. Oh, no, no need. I was just going to say, I think Kelsey and I both, if I can speak for Kelsey, both really appreciated learning not only about Lucy Gwynn, this passionate partisan for justice, right? But also about your craft, right? Yes. And your process of putting this together. And I think we as disability historians often worry a lot that our work is not actually um, reaching the communities that we want it to reach, right? We're not writing in ways that are really accessible or um, we're not necessarily always able to get at the um, emotional core of some of the important stories that we're trying to tell. And so it's really, really wonderful to hear more about this from your perspective and hear about the craft of biography and um, the craft of storytelling. I think that's really mm -hmm. valuable. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I, I loved your questions. Um, <laughs> this, these are really, you folks uh, are a credit to your university and to your field of study. So I, I really appreciate what you've You've asked me to, to, to dig in and think about. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate it. 
Oh, well, I have to give Kelsey all the credit for those. She was the one who, who drafted these ones. So kudos to Kelsey. Before we let you go, Jim, we wanted to ask if you have any other uh, current or upcoming projects or work that you want to share, you want to take this opportunity to plug. I think our audience would be delighted to know more about what you're up to. Okay. I don't have any specific uh, next project. Um, I am glad that I accomplished this one. And uh, one of the things that I got to tell you something, um, this is going to sound like a cliche um, and, and hackneyed, um, but doors open and you, you, you walk through them and uh, you see what's there. And uh, a door opened when I saw this file and I, I walked through it. Um, another door has opened recently that's given me an opportunity to do some editing for a magazine. And I'm busy doing that right now. And, um, and it's really amazing. I'm telling you, the longer you live, the more you realize that um, <laughs> things happen and, and, you, and you shake your head, doors open. Um, and I, I could bore you for a long time with my, my doors open speech, but I won't do that to you. You can, you can tell that once you wind me up, I can, I can, I can get going, but, but I'm, I'm right now I'm editing a magazine. Okay. It comes out every two months. It's, 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 it's not advocacy journalism. It's mainstream journalism. Um, it's got a niche. And I think about Lucy putting out a magazine every two months, managing staff, organizing, crafting, and it, uh, going through this process of, of, of reading over a hundred uh, mouth magazines and analyzing them and thinking about what she did uh, and writing about it has helped me prepare for what I'm doing right now. And uh, it's, and sometimes I, I sit there and I think about Lucy when I'm doing this work. It's just, uh, so we, we can save my lecture on um, the doors opening for another show, okay? Thank you so much for talking with us this evening, Jim. This conversation has been so enlivening. Um, I learned even more about Lucy from you in this conversation than I did from the biography itself. And I know that our listeners will find this conversation to be a really exciting, uh, informative compliment to the book. Thank you. That's exactly what we want. Super. Thank you so much, Jim. It's just been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, pleasure was mine. It really was. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.